Well, a uh, very good evening to you. Uh, welcome to the LSE, those of you who are not normally at the LSE. I'm Tony Travers, uh, Director of British Government at LSE in the Government Department. And the reason we're here this evening is to hear from uh, Nick Robinson, of whom I'll say a little bit more in a moment, uh, about his new book, which is entitled Live from Downing Street, The Inside Story of Power, Politics and the Media. Indeed, that's what it says there. Um, before I just say a couple of words to introduce Nick, I just want to make a, 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 a sort of serious point, really. Um, those of us who are interested in politics, who consume it as a sort of day-to-day business, be it British politics or politics from other countries, rely enormously on those who are nearest the politicians, who day-to-day uh, almost live with them, who have to coexist and yet keep distance, and that the curiosity of needing to be near enough to understand what's going on, but not so close that it appears to be too close, and I'm sure we'll hear about this, seems to me a very, very uh, challenging role for senior journalists in all places, but particularly at the BBC, a public service broadcaster. And in that sense, hearing from Nick Robinson who is at the epicentre of the BBC's uh, news coverage at a very challenging time for UK politics, a very challenging time indeed for the BBC. Um, uh, It's a a great opportunity for all of us to hear from him. Uh, Nick started his uh, journalistic life in Manchester at Piccadilly Radio, I think, and went on from there to work at the BBC, uh, thence to become uh, the ITN's political editor and then returned to the BBC in 2005 uh, to be BBC's political editor. As I say, it's an extraordinary time, the end of the Blair government, all the way through Gordon Brown's short government uh, into the first coalition uh, since 1945. And, as I say, a fascinating time for us all. The book will be available outside afterwards. I'm not really here to sell books, but it is a book launch, so it would be unfair not to do this. Um, So, uh, with... A little more ado, perhaps I can introduce Nick to come and talk to us for perhaps uh, 35, 40 minutes, and then there'll be plenty of opportunities for questions directly uh, to him. So, Nick Robinson, thank you very much. Tony, thank you very much. Tony, thank you very much indeed, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. Thank you very much. Can I just begin my asking a question? What on earth are you doing here on Valentine's night, for God's sake? What is, I'm here, of course, because I love you all. But I assume that you've, you know, it obviously isn't practical, actually, for me to buy you a bouquet or chocolates or take me for dinner, but you collectively could certainly buy me one. So I hope that you'll be doing that by the uh, end of the evening. Now, I'm not here to talk about Valentine's. I'm here to give the first annual LSE lecture on how to manage a crisis, a case study from the BBC. Um, we, we may, I suspect, in questions have the odd uh, question about that. I'm not here to talk about the BBC's recent woes and some important steps that were taken today to try and start rebuilding uh, our reputation and internal morale and so on. But more than happy to answer your questions if you want to, to do that later. I'm here really partly because as an Oxford man, I, I was fascinated to see one of the better other universities. <laughs> I, I, thought that would be, uh, I thought that would be well worthwhile. That, that, that reception uh, there, there was, you know, that nobody actually booed. 
I've counted on some of you being that bad reception. Reminds me of a story that uh, John Major used to tell. There's usually a sinking feeling at that point. <laughs> Do you know what? He's going to tell a joke by, you know, not Billy Connolly, but John Major. But John Major actually told some good stories. And this is a true story John Major used to tell about the time that he met Boris Yeltsin, president of Russia. And Major said to the president, he was very interested in the stories of the horrendous economic situation in Russia at the time. And he said, uh, tell me, Mr. President, briefly, if you would. How would you, I've read lots about it, I've heard lots about it, how would you sum up the state of the Russian economy? And Yeltsin listened to the translation, and then in English he's just read, good. <laughs> a major waited, thinking, you know, maybe he was trying to get up with some more words, uh, and nothing came. So uh, John Major said, well, you know, just fleshing that out a little... Could, could, could you maybe spout a little bit more on your view of the state of the Russian economy? And um, Yeltsin said, not good. <laughs> uh, which is really a sum-up of uh, your re reaction to my, uh, to my joke this evening. Uh, good, uh, and yet not good. Uh, no, I am genuinely very pleased to be here at the LSE, because the LSE, of course, trained two of the key politicians, not just in our nation, but our globe. I speak not of Ed Miliband and Nick Clegg. I do not even speak of John F. Kennedy or Clement Attlee. I speak, of course, of Prime Minister Jim Hacker and President Jed Bartlett, <laughs> both of whom, fictional characters, and the only LSA men or women I'm willing to give any credit to at all as someone from Oxford University. Uh, it's a serious thought. I was looking today at uh, a little bit of information about the LSE, and I learnt your motto. Any LSE students here know your motto? Can you do it? Ah, big mistake, nodding. <laughs> if you're in an audience TV show, never nod. Never, don't put your hand up. That's a kind of no-no. It's like being in a comedy show and sitting in the front row. Can you just tell us what's the, what's the uh, motto? Latin. Oh, I think both. Latin, first of all. Absolutely. There we are. Round of applause. To know the causes of things, to understand the causes of things, which was the guiding philosophy of the great men and women who founded this amazing academic institution. And in a sense, it's that motto, it's the LSE motto about getting the understanding of things that I want to guide me in my talk tonight, and also uh, did guide me in the book Live from Downing Street. Because there is one thing that, when I occasionally get out and about, there is one thing that people want to know the cause of. There's one question that people always ask me in my job. I wonder if people are already doing it. Yeah? There's that kind of, why do you stand? Are we there yet? Anybody here? There's that sort of knowing outside a, an empty building, in, in the dark, and, and the rain, in the cold, for no obvious reason. And really the purpose of this talk tonight, and really the purpose of my book, was to answer that question. I haven't a clue. Uh, uh, seriously, it's a question that I quite often ask myself. Why on earth am I here? Not in the warmth of a studio. There is a boring practical answer, I'm going to tell you first of all. And, and then the less boring, more philosophical answer is the real reason I wrote this book and what I wanted to talk to you a bit about uh, tonight. The boring practical answer for why I'm not in the studio is the studio is quite a long way away. I am operating like a foreign correspondent, if you like, uh, in the village of Westminster. So my workplace, 
uh, when people say, well, what do you do? What does a political editor do? My job is to analyse what those with power, the Prime Minister, the Cabinet, the Government, do, and to report on what those who are trying to hold those with power to account in Parliament, and those who would like to have power, of course, the opposition are doing. So, as it were, my workplace is the House of Commons, that's where I have an office, as well as at uh, the BBC's studios in Westminster opposite, uh, and uh, also I spend quite a bit of time wandering up and down Downing Street to, to do lives. That is where I work from, and Television Centre is an hour away uh, by cab or tube, and therefore isn't very practical for me to get back if I want to monitor what's going on at Westminster up until the final minute to do a report. So that's the dull answer to that question. But I hope the rather more interesting answer to the question of why I stand in the cold and the dark and the rain and the wet is because I can. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is, and I say this particularly in this institution, I think of all institutions, one of the great triumphs of the LSA, I think, is it has attracted men and women from throughout the globe and not just taught them academically, not just brought them together as a student body, but it's taught them British values. It's taught them the values of democracy, the values of freedom as well. And to be serious for a second, I broadcast live from Downing Street, and I do really mean this sometimes, because I damn well can. And there are people who come to this university from around the world, whether they come from North Africa, whether they come from former parts of uh, the Soviet Union, now Russia, whether they come from China, who couldn't do that? Who the act of holding power to account in that way, by physically standing outside the building where decisions are taken by powerful people, would not be practical to do. And of course, what this book is about was the story of the struggle to have that right to stand live at Downing Street, to be able to ask questions of people in power over many centuries. And sometimes people take it for granted that in this country, you know, it's always been possible. And what I wanted just to say to you tonight is that it really hasn't. And it intrigued me as I looked into the history, just to be reminded of how difficult at times it has been. Parliament and the debates of the House of Commons were for many, many years, and by many years I mean centuries, the proceedings were meant to be secret. I don't mean they weren't televised, of course, because there was no television then. I mean, they were, no one was meant to know what their representatives, if they were even regarded as that then, were saying. And there were quite practical reasons for that initially. If you look at the 1500s, even earlier than that, the reason why Parliament was kept secret and the deliberations of Parliament was actually for the safety of members of Parliament. Because if you think of that time, that struggle for power between Parliament and the monarch, the monarch was constantly asking for money and for men. And Parliament was quite often resisting saying we don't want to pay for your wars and we don't want our boys, in inverted commas, to die, to fight and die in your wars. And therefore members of parliament kept their proceedings secret so that the king and the king's men couldn't know who was taking them on, who was resisting the monarch's demand. So it was a way of safety. And over time, the need for secrecy was relaxed somewhat. And then occasionally people would begin to report what was said in parliament. But there would be a fight back. So in the 1640s, I found a report when I was researching for the book, when a speech was produced 
for the public to read. It was ordered to be burnt by the common hangman. So shocking. Not the man who wrote the thing or printed. The actual speech was burnt by the common hangman. And there was a great battle. I'm leaping ahead centuries here. But, um, you know, it's the beginning of my three-hour speech. I just want to make sure that we, 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 we get it. But there's a great... There was a great battle in 1771, a man that um, many of you may have heard of, John Wilkes. There's a statue still to him in London, one of the great fighters for press freedom. Uh, when once again a speech was printed, and a man called Onslow, a member of Parliament, complained. And I think when you think about this today, you'll find this notion particularly shocking. There's a member of Parliament, read his own speech in the press, and he said, This has made me out to be a villain. Or an idiot, or sometimes worse, both. An idiot or a villain. I mean, I just can't think of members of parliament being regarded in that way in our current day. It's unthinkable, isn't it? Onzo was very upset, and he persuaded parliament that they should order that the printers of this heresy should be arrested and thrown to the tower. Now, I won't give you the whole story. Those of you who are doing politics or history may well have studied it. But it ended up with a riot outside the House of Commons in which the then Prime Minister, a man called Lord North, really famous for losing America, which is a bit careless, let's be honest, <laughs> losing America. But he was the one who was assaulted. His carriage was destroyed, much worse from his point of view. His hat was destroyed as well. He was very fond of his hat. And he, he fled from Westminster swearing that he would never try to impose these laws again. But for years... The law of secrecy in terms of the coverage of politics in this country was not repealed. It just simply wasn't implemented. So it was a long, long battle. And there are all sorts of stages on that journey. One of the great speeches during the Napoleonic Wars by William Pitt the Younger was not covered at all externally, and there's still no record of what was said, because it hadn't occurred to anybody that they ought to reserve, as you have here, seats for the press. And the MPs took their friends and family in to see this debate. The journalists tried to fight their way in. There was an editorial in the Times saying it was a disgrace. They couldn't get in. So it's only later that a special gallery, the one that I'm lucky enough to sit in now, was built for journalists to sit rather as you are, ladies and gentlemen, up here. That's how I sit in the House of Commons. So you've got the green benches below, and I sit up there, able to look down on what's happening. But again, that was the result of a fight, a struggle to get the right to do it. Now, all of this, as I say, may seem like rather ancient history. Why would it interest a broadcaster today? Well, the reason is because the fight continues and continued when broadcasting itself was first created. <coughs> when the wireless, as it was called, radio was called to start with, it was invented. One of the very early pioneers of radio, a man called Burroughs, went on to be the first director of programmes for the BBC, he said, there is no serious reason why this could not tr transmit debates of the House of Commons to the people. And he was right. There was no serious reason it couldn't. But can anybody here, anyone, any idea how many years it took? 60. 50 was a good bet. <laughs> 60 years from the moment he said that till members of Parliament finally voted to allow radio in, and it was yet longer because radio came first and then television came over quite a long time after. In the face of opposition from Margaret Thatcher when she was Prime Minister, her own backbenchers had to rebel in the end to force her 
uh, or to vote for, cameras to be allowed into the House of Commons. So this resistance to having full coverage, this resistance to the public knowing, this resistance to questions has gone on, and it has produced a tension over the years, which is another theme of the book. A tension which goes much, much further back. People, when you say this, tend to say, ah, yeah, you mean Alistair Campbell in Iraq. And I'll, I'll maybe say a word about, or two about that in a second. But it goes much, much further back. <coughs> Go to the general strike of 1926. The BBC's only just been created. Winston Churchill was then Chancellor of the Exchequer and also effectively Minister for Propaganda. And Churchill, who many people I suspect in this hall, what do you think of Churchill and the BBC? What, what, what occurs? It's those wartime speeches, isn't it? It's those great wartime speeches. And people tend to think that um, <coughs> Churchill and the BBC go together like a burger and horse meat. You know, they're just, just like that. Um, yeah, I was slightly late here, incidentally, by the way, because the Food Standards Agency that was breaking news have set new hurdles for the production of meat. <laughs> Should just say it. Yeah. They say they're worried that there's just far too much salt and sugar in them. Anyway, moving swiftly on. Oh! Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was no friend of the BBC. In fact, he was a loather of the BBC, and a loather in particular of John Reith, its founder, because in 1926, when the general strike started, the government did what governments do. During national crises, what do governments do? They say, we are speaking in the national interest. We are not mere politicians, we are representing the national interest. In other words, they elied the national interest, the party political interest, partisan interest and their own personal interest. They put them all together and say they are as one. And then they expect the BBC, in particular, to do their bidding. So in the general strike, Winston Churchill said it would be monstrous if what he called this instrument of propaganda were not used on the government's behalf. And one of the first and crucial battles that the BBC had to fight was to keep its independence now, in truth, get the book if this is of interest to you. In truth, because I, no, I mean, in a, because there, there isn't time to go into detail. In truth, the BBC's independence there was very heavily compromised. And John Reith, the first Director General of the BBC, actually helped to script the Prime Minister's radio appeal for the strike to end. So it's a pretty funny sort of independence, but to be fair, he was making up as he went along the notion of what it meant for a broadcaster to be independent. He had no other model to copy. That was independence. There was another great battle during Suez, 1956, the Suez crisis. British troops are flown into Egypt. For those of you who don't know the history of it, the United Nations condemns the action. Britain is secretly, we didn't know at the time, or they didn't know at the time, I wasn't born, that there was a secret deal between the Israelis and the French and the British. And a crucial episode of any questions. Anybody here listen to any questions? Like question time on the radio, it's the original thing on Radio 4. Crucial questions of any questions came on during the Suez Crisis. The panel were informed that due to the law at the time, something called the 14-day rule, they were not actually allowed to discuss anything that MPs either had discussed in the previous 14 days or might wish to discuss in the next 14 days. For a topical current affairs discussion programme, this was something of an obstacle. 
So, the first question on any questions in 1956, November the 2nd, was, do the panel believe that in the modern home, carpets are a luxury or a necessity? <laughs> Seriously. That was the requirement then, the constraint, the straitjacket that was put on broadcasters. And so angry were two MPs, and to be fair, of opposite sides, there was one Labour and one Tory, they complained on air, they never said the word sewers. It was the most bizarre row, I've heard it. Listen back, the archive still exists. Bizarre row in which they never say the thing they're arguing about. It's sort of code of conversation. But so angry did they get that at one point, the engineer pulled the plug on the whole programme because it was too dangerous. So I just give you these examples of how this is a long battle for what can be broadcast and how it can be broadcast. Eventually, Suez and the arrival, I have to say, of competition, very important in our business, the arrival of ITN, absolutely crucial, because they were less establishment-minded than the BBC, they were less willing to go along with the rules of the time, more enthusiastic about picking a fight, great man called Robin Day, one of my inspirations, was a young reporter then, one of the great presenters, founder of BBC's Question Time programme. They used to break the rules. And they broke the rules and they made their own rules. It's something that has always uh, rather inspired me, really. Now, so I find myself, really, as the beneficiary of many of these battles that have been fought over the years and over the centuries. And it's occasionally proved to produce the old tricky moment. In the New Labour period, before they got into government, I think it's fair to say that New Labour wanted a degree of control, should we say. The old, you remember the old joke about the, um, the guy in the barber's chair in the early New Labour years? And he had a pe- pair of headphones on, and the uh, hairdresser thought, I'm going to take them off. So he t- t- took them off, put them on the table. And at that point, his customer falls down, drops down dead. And they pick up the headphones, and in the headphones, Peter Mandelson's going, breathe in, breathe out. (laughs) Breathe in. (coughs) Great thing about being in my job, my log, is it was a terrible joke everybody heard 20 years ago, but now, now, now you can use it again. It produced the odd sort of moment. And my first real experience, I had had 10 years as a current affairs producer. I used to work at Panorama. But I only transferred to being a reporter in the mid-90s. And very early on, I found myself as the duty reporter on the Today programme early in the morning. The guy, if you guys get up early, you sometimes hear at 6.30. You will hear at that time. And um, what happened is, the night before, and this is before Tony Blair was elected in 1997, Claire Short, you remember her? She'd written an article condemning those she called the men in the dark. And the two men in the dark she clearly meant were Mandelson and Alistair Campbell, though she didn't name them. But she said the Labour Party was being taken over by the men in the dark, the sinister manipulators. Anyway, the next morning, and this this story is going to cause mayhem. Labour's about to get elected. There's this fight in the shadow cabinet. This was great sort of soap opera of politics. The next day I got a phone call, very early in the morning, uh, from Peter Mandelson. And it became clear to me that they had panicked overnight that this story would cause huge damage to the Labour Party. And they needed to somehow cobble together a statement between Short and Tony Blair to to suggest that he didn't disagree on anything at all. And so Peter uh, phoned me 
and told me what they'd say. And I said, look, I've got to run, because it was 10 to 8, and I, you know, the news bulletin was on there at 8. Uh, and it was the old days, I was back home with a fax machine. That's all I had. We didn't have computers in those days. Um, uh, we certainly didn't have blackberries and apples, except to put in pies. And um, the, uh, I found myself doing this report, and then suddenly... Uh, a guy called Rod Little, you may have heard of him for Sunday Times, was then editor of the uh, Today programme, rang up and said, you're on at ten past eight. And I said, no, no, that's the slot the Prime Minister normally does. That's the big slot, ten past eight. That's when the Cabinet Minister's are on. He said, it's a breaking news story. You're the only person who knows anything about it. You've got to go on. The Labour Party won't do it. So I found myself going on. And I had one of those awful moments. I don't know if you've ever had this in life. It's maybe appropriate on Valentine's Day to say this. When you think of something you know you shouldn't say... Like, darling, that haircut, that new haircut, that really doesn't suit you. You know, that sort of thing. Or, or you're just looking slightly more overweight than you were. These, these things you don't say, right? I had one of those moments. Not that I've ever said that to my wife, I want you to. Um, I had one of those moments just before going on the radio. And Sue McGregor asked me a couple of questions. I did the kind of what Labour say, what Claire Shorten said, all the boring who, what, where, when that journalists are going to do. And then she asked me the kind of analysis question. And I remember thinking, I know I shouldn't say this. But then you have that awful thing, which is, there's nothing else in your head. Do you know that moment? It's like your head is full. There's nothing else you can think of to say. So I thought, well, I'll say it. I said, Sue McGregor said, well, look, what does this mean, Nick? And I said, well, I think the way to look at it is that Claire Shaw and Tony Blair are a bit like a rowing couple who've agreed not to get divorced for the sake of the family, in this case, the Labour Party. And, and that would have been fine if I'd stopped there. But then I said, um, <coughs> if, if, of course, the problem with Ryan couples is you invite them for dinner and they end up smashing the crockery and screaming at each other and, and then cussing up each other's suits. Peter, Peter Mandelson was not pleased. <laughs> I, I think it's fair to say he had uh, managed to save the Labour Party from this embarrassing story for, I think he told me, 14 minutes between the 8 o'clock news and me saying that at 14 minutes past 8. On the Today programme, he wasn't pleased at all. And the next day, I discovered there was another minorly embarrassing story for the Labour Party, of no consequence at all, as it turned out. But the next day, I discovered, and I only discovered this six, six, eight months later, that he had phoned the overnight editor of the Today programme at three in the morning and said, who is doing your report in the morning on this story about Labour and the royal family? And this woman, to her enormous credit, said, I'm not telling you. And he said, if it's Nick Robinson, I will personally see your career finished. Uh, which he didn't, I have to say. And I always say at the end of this story, I ended up rather getting on with Peter Mandelson when he became effectively Deputy Prime Minister under Gordon Brown. But that's what we mean when we talk sometimes about the attempt to control. To enormous credit, that woman who barely knew me, and I was very junior, went into the office and said... If we have to have Nick Robinson on talking about his gardening, we're having him on tomorrow. <laughs> uh, and as a serious point, that's what you mean by BBC Independence. That's what it means. It's having the balls to take that phone call and say, I don't care. And Peter Mandelson did know the Director General of the BBC, and they did go on walking holidays together. And to his credit, the Director General would have told him where to go. But that's what we mean by BBC Independent. So that was one running. I'm going to tell you a couple of others and then I'll shut up and give you the chance to ask some questions, maybe. The other one that possibly I'm fondest of was with George Bush. Um, don't you miss George W. Bush? 
There's not, there wasn't an overwhelming feeling of yes there, was there? Uh, I miss him. Do you remember he famously said, our enemies are innovative and resourceful? So are we. <laughs> they never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country, and neither do we. <laughs> uh, who could... George W. Bush was, you know, America's answer to John Prescott, in terms of mangling. Prescott famously, my favourite Prescottism was, the green belt is a labour achievement and we intend to build on it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, I just slapped myself. George Bush, that's what I wanted to tell you about. <coughs> Excuse me. George Bush, I had a number of run-ins with in the lead-up to the Iraq war. And in the immediate aftermath of the Iraq war as well. And um, in a sense, I only tell these stories partly because I hope they're nice stories, but partly also because I think they illustrate you know, the, the, the role of journalists asking difficult questions. The first one I recall was Guantanamo Bay. You remember the argument about whether he would send British people back from Guantanamo Bay? And in answer to one question at a news conference I was at between Tony Blair and George Bush, he said to explain why he wasn't giving in to Tony Blair's demand that these guys got sent back, he said, these are bad people, he said. And it was my turn next to ask, ask a question. I found myself asking, Mr. President, do you realise in four words you've just summed up why people don't trust you with other people's liberties? Which was, yes. <laughs> it was considered just a little kind of sharp. I think, but I thought it was defensible. But I'd be interested, it might be an interesting conversation you know, where does the line lie in terms of what is an acceptable question for someone doing a job which is about impartiality is an interesting question. I'd be very happy to talk about it and answer questions. But this then happened again, which is I went again with the Prime Minister Blair at the time, uh, post the war, um, when it was clear that things were going very badly wrong in Iraq, there were terrible death tolls, major bombs, and there was a big report that had just come out by something called the Iraq Study Group saying how badly wrong things were going. And the President and the Prime Minister, this was their first word since the report had been published. And I assumed that they would have cooked up some formula to explain how they accepted this advice, that things weren't going to plan. Broadly speaking, the report said things are terrible and bloody and awful in Baghdad. And the President then opened his mouth and he said, it's all kind of going swimmingly, really. Uh, I forget the exact word. They're in the book. Um, the, uh, and then it was my turn to ask a question. And I had prepared a question. And I suddenly thought, I'm not going to do that. This is, I was so sort of taken aback by this that I said, and I'd written down what he said. I said, Mr. President, there are three words you've used. Here they are. There are three words your study group, which you set up and is staffed by your father's close friends, because it was it's called the Baker Hamilton report. Do you not think that the gulf between these words will make people think you're in denial about the war in Iraq. Now, I was sitting about where you are, sir, in a checked shirt, and the president was standing here. It was about as close as that. And he looked at me and he said, it's bad in Iraq, sir. Will that do? And I thought, it won't do at all, because it's much too short for a television soundbite. I need much, <laughs> much longer than... <laughs> so, in a slightly, I confess, smart arsey way, I said... Um, why didn't you say so before? This was the verbal equivalent of a neutron bomb. <laughs> it's felt air come out of the room in that way. And that moment, do you ever have that moment at school or in work where you've done something, Stephen, and everybody looks at you? 
I, I had one of those, except it was the head of the CIA <laughs> and the Secretary of State, and it was all quite awkward, really. And, uh, and Bush started to finger jab. You, sir, should realise, he said. And it was a very kind of nervous moment. The BBC, at its best, waited about 24 hours before they told me whether I was fired or they thought it was a great, <laughs> a great success. And... You know, there was a paper written, actually, at the Columbia School of Journalism about whether, again, this was crossing the line. Was this a statement of opinion rather than a question? I would defend it, but, but there are people who don't. And I just leads me to my last anecdote, and then I'm going to wind up, which is I then went back to the United States with Gordon Brown for his first visit with George Bush. And it was quite tense because, you know, Brown wanted to distance himself from Bush and distance himself from Blair. So it was all quite awkward, the whole thing. And I thought, I can't do this trick again. I've, I've done this, you know, I've had a row with the president enough already, you know. And, uh, but it came to my turn to ask a question. Another interesting little sort of factlet. Traditionally, uh, Downing Street, whoever's running it, has always just asked the TV guys. It's tended to be the BBC Sky, ITN, to get a chance to ask questions. In America, I discovered from a Downing Street official that the night before this news conference, they'd spent two and a half hours in the White House working out which American reporter to ask the question. To the point that they'd gone through their dates of birth and they'd discovered that it was one guy's birthday. And so what they did, he never asked a question, he was famously shy. As he stood up, the president says on live television, he says, Hey, Chuck, it's your birthday, and you can ask a question of the President of the United States. Do you think it was going to be a tough question? And they would target people who'd asked the wrong questions. To their enormous credit in Britain, I have never, ever not been asked to ask a question in the immediate aftermath of having asked a difficult one. Anyway, I, 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 um, I digress. So it came to my chance to ask a question, put my hand up, said Nick Robinson, BBC News, and I thought, this is fine, I'm getting away with it. And the president then looked at me and went... You still hanging around? <laughs> so I said, well, Mr. President, it's very, very nice to be back in your country. Thank you very much. And I asked the dullest question I could think of. Really dull. And everybody looked a bit disappointed and I thought, got away with it. And I was also very, very hot and distracted because the news conference was outside Camp David. They decided to have it outside rather than inside. Beautiful day, Maryland sunshine. And as it may have occurred to you, I didn't have a lot of hair. And I had no hat and no sunscreen, and I was very, very red by this stage. And so at the end of the news conference, having gone, I thought, without being noticed at all, the President and the Prime Minister are standing here, we're all here, the press, and they're shaking hands. It's called a grip and grin in the business. You know that? Where you grin, and you grip the hand, and I go, oh, grip and grin. Right? Uh, and Chessie's doing it, I'm down there, being you again, uh, and he catches me going, like this, this is the end. And the president goes, next time you should cover your bald head. <laughs> and I thought, I'm being insulted live on coast-to-coast -coast television <laughs> by the leader of the free world. It's the most bizarre thing that's ever happened. Very so anyway, I thought, there we are. So the prime minister and the president then head this way. And behind them is uh, Marine One, which is the presidential helicopter. Like Air Force One, but, but a helicopter. And that is the big photo opportunity, and they're going to, you know, that be the picture on the front page of every national paper. And when they've gone a bit, I thought, just because I was be being, feeling a bit self-conscious, I just whispered, as I recall it, to a few people around me, I said, I didn't know you cared, Mr. President. I don't. <laughs> 
Never tell me that George Bush was not uh, quick on his feet or quick with you. Let, let me just end with one serious thought before taking some questions. I've told you some stories, I've told you some themes that interest me. My one big theme uh, that I think, and I give this particularly to people who are studying politics or studying journalism as well, is that I hope the book sort of addresses is don't take it for granted. Don't take for granted the fact that that relationship exists between journalists and those in power. Don't take for granted that you have a broadcaster in the BBC, but you also have ITV and Sky who produce high-quality news of the sort that many countries would not kill for but would be desperate to emulate. And it isn't just the BBC, it's ITN and it's Sky 2. They produce really high-quality broadcast news. Don't take, for, don't take for granted the notion of impartiality. Because one of the things that I have tried to do in the, in the book is address the question of, can you really be impartial? And there is a perfectly good argument that I've heard again and again, and some people might feel it here, that impartiality is a sort of um, self-conscious neutering. What it means is that you don't ask the tough questions of major powerful corporations or of governments. It's a critique made quite powerfully by, um, I'm going to forget his name now, from The Guardian, who did the hacking investigation. Forgive me, the name will come back to me in a second. Davis. Um, wrote a very good book on this, that impartiality is therefore not a real concept. And there are others who think, well, but impartiality is an ideal, but it's never reached. There are lots of biased people in the BBC or elsewhere. Uh, as, as I say, more than open to take your questions on that, but I would say that the thing that I found, I've worked at ITN and I've worked at the BBC, I've never worked at Sky, but I know lots of people who do, is the one thing that unites them is they go to work every day, those people, trying, not always going to achieve it, but trying to get as close to the story as they can within the available time that day. And I put all those conditions on it because I don't like the grand notion of journalism as finding the truth. We do our best that day, and quite often the next day we learn a bit more and we have to correct what we said and update what we said. But the thing I have found both at the BBC and at ITN and believe is still true of Sky News as well is that basically those people go to work trying to find something out and to tell their audience and that that great privilege of doing it live from Downing Street is something I'm very lucky to do. Thank you very much. Well, we've now got about three-quarters of an hour for questions. I'm sure there will be plenty, questions and observations. If I can just begin, Nick, by... I mean, you, you made much of the fact that Westminster was your village. I know you get out of the village from time to time to go and stand in other cold and wet places to be filmed and talking about uh, things going on in the building behind you. But it is your village. And you've also made much at the end about BBC, ITV and Sky and the desire for impartiality and the, 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 the way in which people do their job. But there will be others who would say, and I alluded to this at the when I was introducing you, that inevitably that creates a sort of, almost a camaraderie, that you and your colleagues, they, you need to get on well enough with the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition of the, t of the day 
to continue to get stories from them and to be able to have access to them and so on and so on. And that that creates a bond or a, a closeness which some would see as just impeding mm. the kind of impartiality that you yourself are referring to. Well, I think it's a proper problem and it, 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 it's, it's worth recognising it. And you can't necessarily do anything about it other than recognise it. I think any specialist journalism has exactly this problem. It's not just political journalism. Um, health correspondents have to get close to the Department of Health. Agriculture correspondents have to know the leader of the National Farmers Union. The banking correspondent, if they can't talk to any bankers, they're not much use as a banking correspondent. But of course, in each of these cases, and certainly true in my world as well, you can say, well, either through conscious calculation, do you think, don't want to offend them, or worse, I would argue, through unconscious, just sympathy. Oh, well, no, no, it's Ed or it's David instead of the Prime Minister, the leader of opposition, other way around. Um, do you not ask the tough question? Do you discount certain stories? And I think, of course, that is a problem. And I, I think you can look at examples like the MPs' expense crisis and you can say that there were political correspondents who didn't know that there was fraud. I Believe me, I had no idea there was fraud, but just did have an idea that yeah, well, look, we all know that their salary's been kept down and therefore they bid up their expenses. That did, that was widely known. And that therefore political correspondents didn't do enough to say, well, hold on, how would that look to someone else? Mm. It was our world. I, I've been self-critical in the book, and I've said, this, um, I've said this elsewhere before. I think I may even have said it at the LSE some years ago. I, I said that I did feel in the run-up to the Iraq war that I... I was so keen, as it were, to find out what those people who were making decisions about whether to go to war or not were thinking and doing, that I forgot in the process there was a danger that you end up, if you're not careful, looking like their spokesman. You know, you go into Downing Street, you get a briefing, you come out, you're a guy in a suit, white guy, middle class, similar background, maybe you went to the same university, and there's a danger unwittingly that you look like a spokesman for the club rather than a critic. And I think the answer to it is not to deny it, which, you know, at, at length I'm not denying it, but to be aware of it uh, and to challenge yourself. And I think the other answer is, and I said this um, within the BBC, I've said, always get more than one specialist on a story. If, it, if it's a long running, I mean, you can't always, but get the security guy as well as the politics guy or get the banking guy as well as the... You know, work together because then you challenge each other's assumptions and prejudices and, and you ask questions. And, that, and that's all you can do, I think. Okay, very point. Now, um, who'd like to start? Uh, in the front here and then at the back. Um, and if you want to, say who you are. But <coughs> if you want to. Hi, I'm Sue Badman. Um, I'd just like to ask Nick, uh, in the past couple of years in, in, with this coalition, how has that changed your job? Has it been a lot tougher? Have you had to see twice as many people? Could you reflect, reflect a little bit on, on whether there have been any differences or, in fact, it's just more of the same? No, no, it's undoubtedly been different. Um, and in some ways it's been harder, actually, Sue. It's been different for this reason, which is that policy now, and the civil service love this and they would advocate this, policy does go much more formally through a process. Um, Quite a lot of stories in the new Labour period were Alistair Campbell ringing up on behalf of Tony Blair or Charlie Whelan or later Lee Damien Murata, whoever, on behalf of Gordon Brown, saying, we're going to do this. 
They hadn't asked the cabinet. In Gordon Brown's case, he certainly hadn't asked the prime minister most of the time. Um, they just knew, honestly. Uh, I mean, just as a little example, I remember sitting watching Gordon give a speech just before he became prime minister. He gave a speech at the um, Corporation of London. Uh, it was a mansion house speech or something like that. And uh, uh, George, George Osborne was watching and thinking, hoping one day he'd get a job. And he texted up and said, what do, you, what do you think the story is? And I said, the story is he's promised to keep Trident if he becomes Prime Minister. Uh, and he laughed later because he then told the businessman, and in fact, Gordon Brown had never actually uttered the word Trident. But I knew that that coded language he'd used meant he was going to co- keep Trident because I'd been briefed that that's what he meant. And Brown, it was a classic piece of Brown spinning, actually. It was like he, he wanted the headline so he was keeping it, but without the words ever quite appearing on the page. That, that was a slight, it may sound like a diversion, but you can't do that in coalition because it, it just literally is not the policy until it has gone through what's called the quad, in other words, Cameron and Clegg, Osborne and Alexander. Uh, and that means, journalistically, it's sometimes harder to get the sort of gossip and scoops and things because, you know, things exist in that world. And also, they realised from last year's budget that when they started to leak what was in the budget, they actually destroyed themselves because it meant that when the budget came, all the potential good news had gone and all anybody focused on was the potential bad. So the coalition has made an actual change to policymaking in this country. It's much more formal. It's much more civil service-led. It's rather more uh, secretive. uh, And it is harder for journalists. But it is an important change. And take the woman back there, yeah. And then Martin... Hi, I'm, I'm Alice Stretch. I was just wondering if you think there is any sort of legacy uh, from the Leveson inquiry on press and media regulation. Yes, uh, undoubtedly there's a legacy, and indeed we're quite close to it being agreed. Quite whether this new idea of a royal charter to underpin a new press regulator flies or not is too early to tell, but it looks to me quite close to flying, that those people, particularly in the Labour leadership who said it must be underpinned by law, by statute, seem at the moment to be reconsidered. But we're not there yet, and I confess to you, it developed quite heavily this week, and I've been busy off making a documentary, I've not studied in detail um, what's happened this week. So I think there will be a new, stronger press regulator, I think there will be a system of big fines, I think there will be a power for that regulator to investigate. Um, But actually... I'm of the view that the biggest impact of Leveson is likely to be cultural rather than uh, regulatory or or a legislative change. As soon as I say this, it's perfectly reasonable for everybody to say, well, the problem with cultural change is it wears off. Well, it it does and it will, no doubt. But the shock that it has given a generation of young journalists who've seen friends and colleagues arrested, uh, don't underestimate that. Really, really don't underestimate that. I mean, I have friends... Uh, who work in, in the press, who are in real shock seeing what's happened to people who just thought they were doing their job. Now, there are people who've been arrested who no doubt will be revealed to have done things that we would all really disapprove of. Uh, but there are other people who were quite young and just thought they were going along doing journalism as journalism had always been done where they work. And the heroes amongst us might have been the people to stand up and say no, but most of us aren't heroes. They're not. And that impact, that chilling effect of, of, of those arrests, I really think in the court cases and so on, will, will have quite a dramatic effect. Thank you. 
And do you think it'll lead to self-censorship? It's a danger. It's a, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a danger uh, that it does. I mean, look, I don't think that the press should invade people's private lives in that way. But there are, and I think some of the press um, response to Leveson has been hysterical. Um, to talk about China, I mean, I talked earlier about China and Russia and so on. Uh, you know, whether you like the Leveson report or don't like it, and I literally cannot take a view. I have to report on it. I do not have a public opinion on Leveson. I'm not able to have one. But it, it's kind of not Zimbabwe, is my balanced analysis, <laughs> I think. Sorry, Paul Dacre, but I don't think it is. You're good. Now, was a guy in a blue, right, blue shirt here, and then a woman at the back next, yes, with hand up there. So, a guy in a blue shirt here. On the subject of impartiality, um, I remember Baroness Hell saying at a talk here a couple of years ago that she had no idea what the political convictions of the other Supreme Court justices were. Um, I'm not likening you to a Supreme Court justice, but do you know what the political convictions of your, your friends in the broadcast media are? Actually, no, really. I mean, quite a lot of them uh, had student political involvement. And I, I write about it in the book. I, I was involved as a student polit politician, right? And therefore, I've got form. And in a sense, I've been... Um, if you go on Wikipedia, you'll find people saying, you know, Nick Rosa can't possibly be balance because this is what he thought 25 years ago. I, I'm broadly of the view that 25 years is quite a long time. Uh, and people say and think things in their student days which don't necessarily uh, keep thinking for all time. Um, but uh, the answer is broadly no, I don't. You occasionally know people's backgrounds. You may know that there's a particular cause that they feel very passionately about, something they're quite outspoken about. Uh, but, but no, generally I, I don't. And I don't think you really should. As I say, my, my view of impartiality is not that there are people born. I think the problem sometimes when impartiality is spoken about is the BBC can sometimes talk about it rather grandly, as if there's this special breed of men and women who are impartial. You know, you have blonde hair or brown hair, I'm impartial. <laughs> Nonsense. That isn't how it works. It's a value set. It's a belief that journalism, broadcast journalism, is better. In my case, it, is, it would also be illegal to do anything else. You know, it would be a breach of, of the law and the rules. But it's rightly done without bringing your own values and your own prejudices uh, to the table. And I, I did look quite... I spent quite a lot of time looking at whether this notion of impartiality can survive. Because it seems to me that in the era of the younger people in here... They may have a tablet in which they can do one click and they get BBC News and they'll get a print, an audio and a video. And they'll get another that's got Al Jazeera. They might do Chinese state television, CCTV. And they may think, well, why are there different laws applying to these three icons on my iPad, which are basically doing the same thing, bring me news? One, one has to be impartial and the, and the other doesn't. And I think there will be a debate in our lifetimes about whether technology means and as newspapers move into video as well, because they will, uh, should we sweep away this notion of impartiality? It's a, it's a dated paternalistic notion. Um, the former Director-General of the BBC, Mark Thompson, said he thought there was a case for allowing ITV, Channel 4, Sky News to, uh, to abandon impartiality if they want to. But the BBC would retain it because we're funded by the public. 
and we couldn't get, we couldn't be funded by a compulsory tax, the licence fee, unless uh, we were committed to try and be fair and balanced. Um, my instinct is that people see a value in it and that they will stick with it. I hope I'm right. There's a question right at the back. Yes, at the back. That's it. You've got the microphone. Um, at the last election, we had the introduction of the TV debates. And I'd just be interested in your views on how that changed the campaign um, and what you saw um, from the inside, and also thoughts on the prospects for them taking place in 2015. So I'm very rudely looking in the wrong direction. Where is the lady with... Oh, sorry, I'm so sorry. I didn't, I didn't see where you were speaking. I didn't mean to be rude. Um, did you ever be here? TV debates and how, how, how did the TV debates change things? Um, I mean, I was impossibly excited that the TV debates happened. I thought it was a bit like... I thought it was a bit like the uh, televising of Parliament. You know, what sort of country is it where you can't have a debate before your election between the people who want to be leaders? And yet, having done them, there was also a sense of... Is that, was that it? Really? Bit of an anti cut Big audiences. So I'm still a great believer in them. Big audiences. The market research, which is terribly important, is that, in particular, younger people who were not interested in politics did tune in. And it did affect their level of interest. They tweeted about it, they argued about it, they discussed politics. And at a time when we're fighting to keep people interested in politics and voting, I think that really is very, very important. So I do think they had a great value. They did have a... Uh, a downside, which is they sucked the life out of the rest of the campaign. And so the danger was that, you know, the first two days of the week were previewing a debate that hadn't happened, then you have the debate, and then you'd have two days analysing the debate that happened, and then you breathe and do it all again. And it's one of the reasons the Tories, in particular, want to have fewer debates during the general election. They believe they can win the next election by focusing on a traditional campaign for any government to say, you can't trust the opposition, you can't trust Labour, they will say. That's what governments always do. Uh, you know, there are only two slogans in, in electoral politics. It's time for a change versus you can't trust the... <laughs> you know, they're, they're literally the only two slogans that ever were. You look at every election you've ever seen, they all fit into that model. Um, and if you want to do the you can't trust the model, you need space for advertising, for press conference, to, to kind of focus on the opposition's parties. It's one of the reasons that, um, that I think Cameron and his team looked like they were flirting with abandoning debates altogether. I wrote a piece in the Times warning about this, but I think now he's committed to them, or says he is, and the issue is whether they try and have them before the campaign or only have one in the campaign and have them early. The format was a bit clunky, wasn't it? Yeah, I think I mean, the, the format, format was... Be improved. Th th there's a kind of loose... I mean, you know, if you watch the French, they'd have two hours without, with without rules. And, and with and experts. Experts, experts. Tony Travers yeah. on the telly. <laughs> Thank you for that. Experts, much, much better. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but no, I think that's, that's exactly right. And, and we had three formats that were identical, whereas I think it would be really healthy if we experimented. Maybe one's a town hall with an audience like this. Mm. Maybe one is that rather formal presentational style we had before. Maybe one's a kind of more of an expert panel or a journalist panel asking questions. But they're impossibly hard to agree because... Politicians, and that, more to important, their spin doctors just see danger. What if this happens? What if that happens? Uh, and it makes them incredibly... Caught. There was a hilarious negotiation I learned about later, about who would shake hands with whom in what order. <laughs> Literally. So it was a fear, I just sort of acted out. So the fear was, you know, you'd have these three lecterns, and, and, and the Conservatives, Andy Coulson became, I'm told, paranoid that, you know, 
brownwood-shaped Clegg's hands. Like, no, no, what about our guy? Does, does that mean he doesn't like our guy? So then there was a, could they all three do a sort of <laughs> musketeers thing? Yeah. One for honour, one for all. And, uh, and they honestly spent hours debating, and then they agreed they would, nobody would shake anybody's hands. You know, and it, 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 so one negotiator said, can't, can't, we just, can't we just bloody shake hands with you? They want to, no, no hands will be shaken. Um, so they're all that sort of thing that uh, spin doctors are after all paid to worry about. And then here. So there, here, <coughs> and at the back. Okay. Hi, uh, Martin Rogers. I was reading, I have read your book, and one thing struck me when you were talking about standing in Downing Street, talking to people as they politicians as they came past and it made me think why do politicians confide in members of the media in the ways that they do why do they not only plant stories but chat to you as you're walking up Downing Street in the way that you can't give they can give you a favour but you can't give it back because BBC's impartial on that ah but you can give a favour back in a different way and it's not an overt trade what what, what do journalists have information because I know what you've said, and I also know what they've said. And, and you don't know what they've said, and he doesn't know what you've said. And so there is an appetite amongst politicians. What do you think is going on? You know, do you think Gordon Brown really is plotting against Tony Blair, would come the question. You know? Not a complicated question to answer. <laughs> as, as it turned out. Uh, but in other words, politicians, A, you know, it's a gossipy world. People like gossip, and they want to... Now, information is power. They want to have a bit of information that somebody else has not got and to, to have it. They genuinely want to get your sense of it. I mean, the first question I'm almost always asked about by any politician is, by any leading politician is, what, you know, if it's a Labour policy, what do you think the Tories are up to? Tory, what do you think Labour are up to? You know, because we have the great privilege of talking to people on all sides. Um, and, and therefore, there is a, there, it's not an overt trade, it would be, but there is a sense in which they get something back because they get a better understanding of what's going on. And they're just inveterate gossips, really, that's all. She's like telling people. But yes, in the, in the book I describe how being on Downing Street sometimes, not always, quite often it's empty, but you just bump into people, which, is, um, which can be fascinating. People who come along, they come out of meetings, um, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, there's all sorts of things. I thought, oh, right, they've been in, have they? That's interesting. You know, I, I, I once Gordon Brown came back late night from being at a show, and I was broadcasting in Downing Street. And then the next thing I noticed is that David Miliband was coming as a guest for a drink at Downing Street late at night before Brown was prime minister. Hello. Hmm. Interesting. So you pick up things that way. And certainly, the former chief whip. Um had an interesting passage Indeed. In street, as it turned out, still Indeed. a matter of much uh, interest. And in the middle here, yeah, and then at the back. Thanks so much. Uh, Matt Corris from the Hansard Society. What do you make of the criticism that some would have that the media coverage of politics in general is too negative? And is there anything politicians can do and the media can do to present some of the more positive work that politicians do do and inform the public better about that? Yeah, no, I, th I think there is something in that, in that criticism. And when I was writing, I mean, the book is not really a memoir, there's bits of it that are, but I did review some of the stories and I couldn't even remember why somebody had resigned, let alone the exact circumstances of the resident. And there are times where you think that was a major scandal. It was so scandalous, 
I can't remember why they went. <laughs> and that does give you pause for thought. And I do think, funnily enough, that the critique that uh, Tony Blair gave in a famous speech calling the media feral beasts um, was a powerful critique if only he'd been willing to admit his part in the story. I mean, his great mistake was not saying, we span too much, people didn't believe us, we've created some of this climate of cynicism, but now let me say to the media. He didn't say any of the first bit. But his critique, which is that the... The, the, the media at its worst behaves like a pack of dogs trying to bring somebody down, is a, is a proper critique and something that, that people should think about. What can you, you do about it? I think there are two things that you can do about it. One is to be willing to stand outside the conventional wisdom. One of the things I think is bad about... Uh, I'm going to do my old-fashioned Yorkshire voice again, about new technology. No, it, it's a sort of... But I, I'm going to make an old farts point. But one of the things that is bad about the information age we live in now, it's encouraged crowd thinking. It hasn't. The number of kids I talk to who go, no, no, it's brilliant because I'm independent. No, you're not. You, what you do is you find out what your friends think on Twitter and then everybody thinks it. Or in a blog. There is much less independent. One of the reasons there was more independent thinking even before I became a journalist is quite often the political editor of BBC did not know what the political editor of ITN had said till 24 hours later. You couldn't tape what he'd said. You were busy at work. There was no videotape. You, you certainly couldn't read it on Twitter. <laughs> How would you know unless somebody rang you and said, you know, an old-fashioned phone with a wire? This is what was... So you had much more... There was much less sense of a pack mentality. And I do think it's worse technology now produces a sort of... I'll tell you what I think when I've discovered what everybody else thinks. And you can have... A, 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 the granny tax is an interesting example of this. In the last budget, someone thought of the hashtag granny tax for a measure that George Osborne uh, announced. Now, there is an argument, and my point is not to say the granny tax is a good or a bad thing, but there is an argument that said it wasn't really a tax at all. Uh, and no granny was going to pay more tax. I won't bore you here now, but it was about an mm. overtime equalisation of a personal tax allowance. So it just meant that a future benefit some grannies might one day have got, they now wouldn't get. You try saying that on the telly, granny tax is a lot snappier. And there is a danger that it... So the answer, sorry, the two ways I think we've got to do it is one, just have more courage to say, uh, no, I don't think that is how it is. Actually, I don't think that is what everybody cares about. Um, and the second thing is, as you say, to highlight where politicians do good work. One thing that I think is incredibly positive in recent... Years is the select committees have become the place. You may not even know they're called select committees if politics isn't your thing. But the grilling of bankers, the UK immigration authorities, uh, the guys who did the security G4S for the Olympics, I could go on and on, it'll happen now with the food industry. Grilled by MPs, live on television, wrapped in the news. <coughs> I think, again, has its downsides. It's sometimes rather theatrical and childish and sort of... But it does at least have the role of being that Parliament is the place that people are held to account. It's the kind of modern-day stocks for people who've done something wrong. So I think we have to emphasise that as well. Well, I mean, to talk about MPs grilling the food industry, congratulations on resisting another <laughs> horse joke. Um, no, I didn't, of course. Uh, chap here and then right in the middle there. Oh, God, I've forgotten you. I'm so... Yes, you, and then here, and then there. I'm so sorry. Really sorry. How serious do you think is the uh, current 
a constant and public sniping at the Prime Minister by Tory backbenchers. It's pretty unprecedented. How much unrest is there? And when you're in the lobby, uh, do more than the usual suspects come up and uh, bend your ear on, this, on, on the Prime Minister and his failings? And can I add to that? Isn't this the Conservative Party losing the thing that used to make it permanently the yeah. party of government? Um, yeah. It was always said, wasn't it, that the Tory party's secret weapon was loyalty. Uh, it's, uh, whether they've disarmed it or blown it up in their own faces, I'm not <laughs> sure. But it uh, depends which metaphor you choose. Um, it, it's serious, but I don't think it's serious enough to topple him. But, that, but it doesn't need to topple him to be serious, if you see what I mean. Um, there's no doubt that there is real anger amongst uh, Tory backbenchers. And as ever, what you have to do is be careful to categorise. There are some people who always rejected him, who regarded the whole notion of Tory modernisation as being uh, something that they disagreed with profoundly. Okay? There's another group who are disappointed because coalition meant there were less jobs, fewer jobs to give out. So there are people who had told their husbands and wives that they were going to be ministers, and then they weren't. And they told their friends. Never, never forget the role of personal humiliation in stories. Never, ever forget the personal in stories. You, you tell all your friends, if when we win the election, I'm going to be a minister, you know, he's told me. And then two days later, you're not. Well, five days, because the coalition negotiations. You're just that boring backbencher. And you're on 45,000 less per year than you would have been. Not all that surprising if you're a bit hacked off, is it? So there's quite a lot of that group. There's a group who believe that he doesn't like them. I, I, I wrote a blog the other day, so forgive me if you read it or heard me say this, I think I said it on the television as well, that, you know, Tories used to like heroic unpopularity. They like Mrs Thatcher because they woke up knowing that strikers hated them and CND hated them and the Soviet Union hated them, but that was heroic. That was like, yes, we're hated for good reason. You know, what they don't like doing is waking up and, and those were all the dragons that she had to slay. What they really don't like waking up to, and this is Tory activists as well, is waking up and realising that the dragon that David Cameron is slaying is them. Because of their attitude to, say, gay marriage. <coughs> or, or Europe. They really, really don't like that at all. So, the, in other words, this is a long-winded way of saying... Actually, there's one other group, if you forgive me. Underreported, I think, is that Cameron did this thing of calling an A uh, list of candidates, of trying to get high-quality candidates into Parliament it probably was his greatest self-inflicted wound because the sorts of people who got on, and I think this is accepted across the House of Commons, are really quite high quality. But um, many of them, not all. But of course, being high quality, they're used to being the boss. They are independently minded people. They are not used to getting a message on their text telling them how to vote. And so you've got all these groups have come together and they look at Cameron and think, well, you didn't win last time and you're probably not going to win now and the economy's not doing well and you picked a round gay marriage and you're nice to that Nick Clegg and he's a liberal. We don't like him. And it is a pretty potent mix, but I don't think it'll bring him down. OK. In the front here, yeah. And then in the middle there, yeah. And then right at the back. There. Peter Barrett from Think Tank Policy Connect. Nick, you won't remember, um, but uh, just after the last general election, you and I uh, had a phone call conversation. Um, <laughs> if there are press here, I deny it. 
spokesman. My spokesman. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I've, got, I've got the notes to prove it. No. Um, yeah. I was at the time doing a master's in political communication, yeah. and I was doing my dissertation in uh, political spin, the development of it. Uh, and it was just after, as I say, the general election. And I was trying to look at whether we had sort of passed the high point of political spin, obviously the new Labour and Labour years, um, and um, whether we were going to see, not just because it was a coalition, but just generally because it was a new government, whether we were going to see a new type of spin, Cameron had publicly uh, lamented it, uh, and if we were going to see a sea change. Looking back over the last two and a half years, do you see any difference in that phone call conversation? You. What did I say? You analyse. You, well, you, you came up with quite a nice pithy sort of difference between sort of high and low spin, and you said like low spin being not in sort of moral terms, but low spin being sort of general political marketing will always be there, and if anything will grow. However, the high spin, the sort of the aggressive side of the, the Alistair Campbellism, um, might might just um, die down a little bit. Some reflections on on that now. Well, Two and, and a half years later, the election. I agree with Nick. <laughs> A brilliant analysis. Um, I, but broadly speaking, I do think that's how it's turned out. So in other words, I think there is much less, and this is on all sides, I might argue, I might say, there is much less of a sort of aggressive uh, pre-buttle, rebuttal complaints. There is less of that. There's less of kind of throwing your weight around. If you put so-and-so on in the morning, you're in trouble and so on. There, there just is less of that. Partly because, you know... Labour, and they say, admit this, were damaged by it in the end. And therefore, it's not in anybody's interest to continue in quite that way. But the point I was trying to make you to then and would make to everybody now is that you will never escape. It depends what you mean by... I don't really like the word spin. I'd love it to go away, actually, because I don't think it's a very helpful notion, I'll be honest with you. What does it... What does it you know what? I did a documentary in the 1980s when I was first a producer... And we had John Rental and I, John Rental, now the Independent, was then the reporter. I was the producer. And we debated for an hour whether we could use the word spin because nobody knew what it meant. Literally, nobody had heard of it. And we eventually wrote a script and we said, spin, a term from American politics, which means, really was unheard of. Now, at one level, I find it frustrating because, you know, Lord Palmerston, Prime Minister, quite a long time ago, used to have journalists up to his house... Uh, and he would show them the draft of a speech, and he'd say, what do you make of that, boys? Well, they probably didn't call them boys. Uh, and they'd say, well, that, we can't really make a lot of that, but we could if you did that, and he'd rewrite the speech. Well, that was in Victorian Britain. Politicians and journalists have always had those sorts of relationships because politicians need journalists to communicate, and therefore they're going to try and put the best spin on it. They'll try and put a gloss on things. I think... Spin, in the sense that was seen as very negative, in the, in the, uh, became seen as very negative, although initially it was admired as skillful media management by uh, the likes of Alistair Campbell, has gone away, but new forms of control are attempted. I mean, a big frustration for me now is that under this government, they don't like doing television and radio interviews very much, so that David Cameron and George Osborne don't really often face cross-examining, and in as much as they do, they choose certain programmes and shun other programmes. And that, do you call that spin? They would say, well, why should we go on a programme where we're insulted or there's no point? But it's a form of trying to retain control. Um, and it's something I've said, complained to them about. If you talk to other journalists, Prime Minister doesn't do regular news conferences. He 
quite rarely does big television interviews. Uh, he's around a lot, you see him a lot, but he quite often wants that on his terms, which is, you know, send a camera and a producer and the Prime Minister will give you a 45-second clip. And I am gradually saying to people, you know, there are days when that's right. If the Prime Minister needs to tell you he's, you know, he's very sorry three people died in an avalanche, you know, of course. For his convenience and everybody's, you just send a camera and say, you look, there it is, speak. There are other days when I am saying to the BBC and other people, we ought to say no. No, we, we, won't, we, we are not a televised press release. You may not simply use our airwaves to say whatever you like. If you wish to speak, we then have the right to ask you tough questions properly at length. That is the sort of tension that's existed under all governments, and it exists under this one. In the middle. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Hi. Uh, my name is Daniel. I just have a question. I want to pick up on something that someone just mentioned about uh, independent thinkers on the Tory backbenches. And I, I want to connect that to something you said, which is we shouldn't take for granted um, good journalism and we shouldn't take for granted impartiality. To what extent should we take for granted that the members of the cabinet actually know anything about what they're supposed to be doing? Um, is there a particular example? There's a I would not say anything about Jeremy Hunt right now. Um, but what, what I would ask you is, to what, what, based on your experiences with uh, politicians at extremely senior levels, what percentage do you think are actually policy-minded people who know what they're talking about? And what percentage would you say are actors or people who feel like they have an important role in exercising power? And do feel free to name names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. BBC man says X percent of uh, people are actors. I'm going to probably resist the, putting the percentage on the number of actors, if you don't mind. Um, it's a good question. I mean, I tell you what, let me answer it this way, though. I mean, it's quite interesting. I think Cameron and Miliband, to a slightly lesser extent, Clegg, but that's because of his previous experience, were pretty policy wonkish. You know, Ed Miliband is definitely a policy wonkish. He's a lessee man. He would be nothing else. But, I mean, he'd done that sort of job for Gordon Brown. David Cameron had been policy wonk in the Treasury and the Home Office for his party for a long time. You could make a different criticism of them, which my father, if he was still alive, would make, which is they've never done a real job. That would be the criticism, you know. So they may know about policy as an abstract, but they might not know about, as it were, what he would have called the real world in that sense. So... I mean, of course you're right, there are quite a few politicians who are merely reading a brief. I mean, the famous story is told of a civil servant who said to a journalist, I think uh, so-and-so, this is a true story, incidentally, but I'm not going to tell you who the minister was, said, uh, I think so-and-so is doing very, very well as uh, Secretary of State for Transport. And the journalist said, really? But he hasn't done anything at all. He said, precisely. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, it's the kind of yes minister idea, isn't it? So, yeah, sure, there are, there are um, plenty of people. But I'm also struck, I, I am, and this is where I may be a bit guilty of what, the, the question that Tony asked me about at the beginning, about, you know, do you get too close? Uh, you know, on behalf of the trade union of politicians, I'd say there's, there's quite a lot of good and decent, hard-working, intelligent, thoughtful people who may nevertheless be floundering. So I don't mean they're right or they get it... I mean, I think what's striking, and this maybe goes back to the question from, forgive me, I've forgotten your name, but the Hansard Society. Maybe we don't do enough of this. 
to explain, and maybe they as politicians don't do enough, which is to say, you know what, we're not really in control of this. You know, just take a whole series of issues. Climate change. You know, is the Prime Minister going to stop climate change? No, he really isn't. You know, we're responsible for 2% of the globe's emissions. He may make a bit of a difference here and a bit of a difference there, but it's not going to change the world, right? Um, immigration policy. He's governed by our membership of the EU and being signatories of 145 from memory, it may be a slightly different number, uh, signatory of the International Refugee Convention. If you wanted to change that, you'd have to get all 144 others to agree to you with it. You want to change um, air travel in this country to do with uh, um, CO2 emissions. Uh, I've done programs with these things where I remember these nerdy facts. I think I'm right, it's, uh, right I think there's 154 signatories to the Air Travel Convention. So if you can get all 153 to agree to change it. Human Rights Act, all the members of the Council of Europe. I mean, in other words, my point is that there's another factor between your, as it were, dichotomy, which is, you know, kind of serious guys and, and fools and actors, which is a lot of people who aren't in charge of as much as they would like us to think they're in charge of, but they're scared to admit it. I mean, can I push that, I mean, this question a bit further? Because, I mean, this government has got a number of policies. They learned, they read Tony Blair's autobiography, and they thought, we're going to get into power, and we must do things quick, otherwise we won't do them. And so, <clears throat> ministers, most of whom had never been in cabinet positions before, although some of them had been in opposition for some while, embarked on a series of very radical reforms without really knowing, knowing what the impact would be. Now, in fairness, that's not unique to this government and these ministers. But I mean, it is an extraordinary, and it's difficult to know how you get round this, I might add, but it is, it's the degree of willingness to go for the radical change with an individual who may never have been in government before pushing it through. Yeah, but I think that's a, arguably, that be a good uh, thing, again, know. of course, I have no opinions, but arguably that may be a weakness of the British political system, which is if we were talking about American politicians or German politicians, they would have, because they're federal systems, they would have usually had experience in the lender in Germany or in a state. Uh, not always, of course, there are senators. They would have been older in the past, yeah. of course. They yeah. would have been older in the past. And, and indeed, they would have been older and had more direct experience. So I do think there's a, there's a weakness um, in, in the system in that sense of giving people experience. And it seems to me the experiments with giving cities like London more power, now you've got Bristol and Liverpool uh, uh, doing elected mayors as well, you know, is going to give a generation of politicians will be able to say, I have run something. Uh, now, it still happens with council leaders. You can do it now. Manchester doesn't. It's my home city. I have a directly elected mayor. But it's a pretty impressive cadre of people who've run Manchester over the years. I think it's generally thought. So maybe, again, that there is a premium on that. But, you, but in a sense, Tony, you, you raised the, the other side of what I was saying, which is politicians who fear that they're not in control of events and fear they're running out of time are tempted then to say, right, really go for it mm. before the system, the establishment, stops us. Which is why you saw in health reforms and welfare reforms and particularly education reforms. And I think Michael Gove, if he were here, and you know, I think whether you love or loathe Michael Gove, one of the things is he's pretty candid about this stuff, is he said, I'd rather take three steps forward and then end up taking one step back. At least I'm moving forward. That would be his... You know, that's what he did the other day when he yes. reversed policy. He's like, sure, I've just done a U-turn, big deal. I'm still changing things. And, 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 you know, his real view of the world is lots of people out there don't want me to change it, and I'm damn well changing it. And you may not like it, but that's, what, that's how I go to bed at night thinking I've changed something. Okay, very good. Now, 
Uh, we've got about time for two questions. So, yeah, right at the back, blue shirt. One more from the, and there, and the long arm. <laughs> I can see the long arm, but not exactly to whom it's attached. Yes. Absolutely. As long as it's not the long arm of the law. <laughs> Uh, my name's uh, Anthony, and I would declare an interest in your answer because I'm a civil servant and I uh, work in communications and act as a spokesperson as well. Um, I think we've talked a lot about spin and sort of journalists um, having privileged access to information. Um, and uh, for me, the opposite of spin, um, government spin, is a media narrative. Um, do you, do you think that actually each government, and to be more specific, each number 10 operation is just as good and just as bad as its predecessor, but it depends on the media narrative? And you know, we saw that with Gordon Brown, his honeymoon period, followed by a mighty crash. Same with David Cameron, you know, arguably until the last budget, he was riding high, and then with, with the budget and everything else, it's omni-shambles. Um, yeah, is it, is it just an overriding honeymoon followed by a crash? Um, I, I, um, I agonised before writing... A t there's a chapter I write about, Tony, about Gordon Brown's experience, and I agonised. I found it an incredibly difficult chapter to write because relations became really, truly dreadful between the Prime Minister and the media. Uh, and in a way, I felt OK about it in a curious way because it was dreadful with everybody, so I didn't feel it was sort of me. Uh, and they really were dreadful. Um, and we felt, I think, I hesitate to speak collectively for, for, for the media, but I think we felt, uh, to put it at its least uh, 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 damaging and um, actionable, we felt that our intelligence was routinely being insulted. Did you call off the election because of the opinion polls? No, the opinion polls had nothing to do with me not having an election. Yeah, right. Um, are any people going to lose out because of abolishing the 10p tax ban, which incidentally Ed Miliband has promised to restore today? Nobody will lose out. But it costs £6 billion for Alistair Darling to remedy the damage done by a policy which nobody apparently, officially, lost out from. So the worst thing you can do if you deal with me as a press officer, really feel this strong, don't insult my intelligence, you know? By all means say, I think this, you may not. Tough. We were elected, you weren't. This is what we're doing. But, but, but it's not always as bad. And I think Cameron's government, in a sense, is a classic midterm blues. This happened to... People forget that one of the reasons Tony Blair didn't have midterm blues is we were in a soaring economy. I mean, the only debate was, how much more extra money did you give to everybody? <laughs> yeah, I think we will look back at that period and say... Yeah, it's hilarious when we look back. He used to give speeches about tough choices. Mm. There were no tough choices that had to be made. That was literally, yeah, you can have some money, you can have some money, you can have some money as well. You know, whereas governments, and I don't make a particular point about this government, governments of the 70s, governments of the early 80s, face some really, really uh, difficult choices. I mean, don't get me wrong, Teddy Blair had some other really big uh, choices, a pretty tough choice about whether to go to war in Iraq. I'm not saying he never made a tough choice. I'm just saying some, some you know... Anyway, I'm waffling on. But, um, so my answer is no, it isn't always the same, although, of course, there's a bit of a pattern to it. Okay, and our last question. Man with the long arm. Uh, Michael Veal, what has the last decade plus um, done when we've seen the rise of mobile phones and, as you say, Apple and Blackberries? What parts of your job has that made easier and what parts of it have, has it made harder? 
Well, easier, I think. Um, what's it made easier? Well, easier is the speed with which you can obviously access your own sources of information. So, I mean, you, you, you are not dependent on. I mean, I, I don't. Do, I promise, I don't do this for old farts' sake, but I do it just because I think it's uh, interesting. Two, two little examples. I can't explain to my children what that world looked like before. Uh, at a banal sense, how I, in order to know what a newspaper said, I had to go to a person who actually cut the bits out in Television Centre and kept them in a file, and you'd sit there and photocopy them. You know, the idea you could find out within 30 seconds, I'd say, what's that? Google? Okay. So, that's easier. But at a more profound sense, it meant there wasn't information control. That, sorry, governments could have information control in the way they can't. You know, how will I ever explain to my children what... My, my grandparents were German-Jewish refugees from Berlin... How will I ever explain to them the notion of the Berlin Wall? How do they ever understand that you could stand 200 yards from another house, not watch the same TV, not be able to make a phone call, not text, not talk, literally be in different worlds while separated by a machine gun nest? I don't, it's, it's a sort of... I don't think we do enough to try and communicate to people what a profound shift... That is in, in, in the way the world works. But how's it made my, uh, my job harder? Um, I think I probably would go back to what I said before. It's this crowd mentality that everybody thinks they already know. And I think the very damaging thing, I think it's sometimes done to journalists, if I could say if there are some aspirant journalists here, is it's made journalists lazy. You know, journalism is not reading Twitter. <laughs> journalism is not Googling. Journalism is getting off your arse and talking to somebody. It is asking a question. It's asking a question that you don't, that the person may not want the answer to. It is going to a place where you're not supposed to go. It is finding out something. What it isn't is gathering all that stuff on the web. I mean, I'm not saying the web can't be used to do great journalistic discovery, but it is an excuse too often. Sorry, I'm giving a rather passionate last speech. <laughs> But I do feel this very strongly. It is an excuse for not doing journalism and not asking original questions and not making up your own mind at its worst. Right. I'm not going to ask a, a banal question like who's going to win the next election. That would be <laughs> really... But I, what I would like, just to, as a way of finishing off, Nick, when you, you um, spend more time with more politicians, closer to them, gossiping with them, researching them, whatever... Googling them. Um, <laughs> do you think when you're standing live outside Downing Street on the day after the, or several days as it was last time after the next general election, you'll be talking about a majority government, mm. a minority government, or a coalition government? What an interesting question. Uh, I think there's always a danger that you think the last thing that's happened is likely then to happen again, and there's still the statistical chances of. Uh, Minority government, uh, the coalition being quite a lot that high. But I certainly think as a, a country, it is quite, quite possible that we end up with a new coalition government, maybe a Labour, Liberal, Democrat one. It seems to me... So I'm hesitating slightly because I know this is all on the record. But it seems to me... Yeah. <laughs> yes, quite. I take back all that stuff I said. Um, it's an impersonator, it's not me. Um, it seems to me that... The Liberal Democrats are not likely to do as badly as a lot of people think. I think um, 
Eastleigh will be very interesting in this for, the, for this reason. I think the incumbency factor is important. I think... Uh, um, and I think it is quite possible at the next election that the long-term decline that we've seen in the size of the vote for the two big parties, it used to be about 90%, has come down to about 70 could continue. Now, the Lib Dems may not be the beneficiary of that. It could be UKIP, it could be the Greens, it could be the Nationalists, it could be the BNP. But it seems to me that sense that people may look at the two big parties and the two candidates for Prime Minister and say, neither of the above, actually, please, is quite a powerful bit of the electorate to be played for, and that it's not impossible that the Liberal Democrats will get a slightly bigger share of that, even with people holding their nose. I mean, I, I do remember that in 1992, quite a lot of people, I don't know, people who had a vote then, revealed that they simply didn't know how they'd vote until they stood with their cross over the ballot paper. And, and you know, the bad news for Neil Kinnock and the Labour Party is they just couldn't quite bring themselves to do it. And they voted Major, 14.5 million votes, remember, largest popular vote any yeah. politician has ever had, John Major. And I just think there's a chance, and I'm not saying who they'll vote for, but there is a chance that when they just come at the last minute, there's going to be something that holds people back from voting for the big two. Lots of people will, but lots of people won't. So I may well be talking about a coalition. This time, last, just, this time, just last, sort of, just to lighten up for 30 seconds, last thing, I will remember to get some sleep. Because the, the agony of the last election was, what you basically do is you do the 10 o'clock news uh, when the polls close, and then you stay awake, or it's you, I, that's uh, my job. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> uh, we are a grandmother, I'm talking the third person, it's very worrying. Uh, and you, you I, I, I had to stay awake all through the night for the general election, and then all the night till the 10 o'clock news the next day, so that's 24 hours on air, uh, without a break. Uh, I mean, you have the old sort of, you know, bacon sarnie, but without a proper break. And I did it thinking, that's fine, because at 10 o'clock on the Friday night, I go to bed. <laughs> except that we didn't have a government. So I thought on Saturday morning, I'll go to bed, except we didn't have a government. Then I thought on Sunday, we didn't have a government. Monday, didn't have a government. And five days. And by the time Cameron drove up Downing Street to become Prime Minister, I said to a lovely woman called Laura Koonsberg, now works for ITV, who was then on the BBC News Channel, I said, look, Laura, I'm so tired, I can't really... You, you do this one. On 24 hour news said, there's a new Prime Minister and you're the political editor. You've got to do it. And I actually said, no, I'm too tired, I can't do it. And the cameraman actually went and got me, a brilliant cameraman who'd worked in a war zone, got me, went and got me a cup of tea with more sugar in it than I have ever had. And I sort of took a sip of tea and they went, fucking hell, there's a new Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that'll happen next time. Well, <laughs> so that's the... That's Nothing on the stage has quite ended like that recently. So thank you for that. Very good. Okay, well, look, um, Nick, it's been a great evening. Um, I think we've all learned a lot about your experiences in near, poli or actually near politics and actually also about the craft of journalism, the craft of journalism, because journalism is a craft. And interesting, I think, when you were describing the need to do research as a journalist, it isn't, though some academics would query is not that different from the kind of research academics do, and it is a long way from um, what can be found even in the best of the new media. So uh, thank you very much for that. I have, before I finally, finally thank you to say, um, between past pieces of paper rather ominously, but they all say, um, 
you'll be here to, happy to hear that there's a reception in the atrium gallery, which is sort of just through there. So if you'd like to do that, and equally, uh, Nick will be signing copies of the book outside, so feel free to go out and stand in a queue and get them signed or not, um, and buy one. So, Nick Robinson, thank you very much for coming. Thank you for coming.